Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast. This week, I had the exciting opportunity to chat with Mina Chikara, Associate Professor of Psychology at Harvard University, where she directs the Intergroup Neuroscience Lab. The lab uses social psychological and cognitive neuroscience approaches to study how group membership and prejudice change the course of social cognition, studying phenomena such as schadenfreude, empathy, and dehumanization. Mina's work has been covered in outlets such as the New York Times and Time Magazine. In this episode, I ask Mina about her latest work on hate crimes in the US. Specifically, Mina argues that as a minority group grows larger than other minority groups, it faces more negative attitudes and hate crimes. Mina chats about how these findings might contrast with the essentialism literature, where a minority group would be attributed certain fixed traits. She then shares how she sees social psychology progress as a discipline and what she would like to see in the future. Finally, Mina gives advice for young scholars in the field and discusses how to find an idea worth pursuing. Hope you enjoy our conversation. I am thrilled today to be talking with Mina Chikara about some really serious research on hate crimes. Thank you for taking the time to join this podcast. Thank you so much, Eric, for having me. It's my privilege and honor, especially to join the ranks of all the amazing psychologists you've had on so far. It's really, it's really a pleasure. We are so excited to have you and to talk about some, some wonderful research on a really not wonderful topic. Before we talk about the findings, If you could just talk a little bit about the timeliness of this issue of hate crimes. Sure. I mean, you know, unfortunately, the paper doesn't actually speak to the timeliness of it so much in part because the period that we cover is from 1990 to 2010. But I think that this is really on everybody's mind in part because it certainly feels as though the media coverage of hate crimes has increased and that there has been an uptick in particular of hate crimes against Asian targets and victims throughout the U.S particularly in response to COVID-19. And I think it's really top of mind. Now, I don't want to overstate the incidence of hate crimes. You know, they are a relatively rare event, but I think they're incredibly important in part because of the shockwaves that they create throughout the communities, both locally and nationally, uh, for members of these different racial and ethnic groups. So I do think it's incredibly important to talk about them, even though the incidence of them is so low. And I also think that it's another reason why it's important for us to, in the paper, discuss lesser forms of prejudice and discrimination in the form of attitudes, because we want to be able to talk about whether or not the sort of intermediate steps between people's attitudes and preferences for or against groups and something like these heinous hate crimes also sort of conforms to the predictions laid out by our models. Not to be too academic about this, but how do we define hate crimes? That's a really great question. So this is actually, it's not an academic definition. It's a definition that's provided in the Uniform Crimes Reporting. And so what is, this is something that shows up in the paper. There's a really long list of conditions that have to be met for something to be classified by the FBI as a hate crime. But it is important to note that it includes both violent crime as well as nonviolent crimes like destruction of property or graffiti. And so we do a number of checks across different classes of crimes to make sure that our results are not, you know, For example, that some kinds of hate crimes target this group and other kinds of more violent hate crimes only target this group. 
sort of as a spoiler, it turns out our findings hold when we restrict our analyses only to violent hate crimes across all groups. So it's not it's not going to be, you know, a confound, for example, in the in the results that we talk about today. But I think what's important about this uniform uniform crimes reporting uh, data set is that it has specifically in it both the bias motivation of the hate crime reported in it. So, for example, there's a column in it that will say anti-Semitic, anti-Muslim, anti-Black, and so on as an entry. But it also gives you the race and ethnicity of the perpetrator in the file. Um, and not surprisingly, that is overwhelmingly, the entries are overwhelmingly white <laughs> um, in, in that aspect of the perpetrator dimension. Yes, I think this is the moment where we reveal this wonderful main finding that you have. Yeah, so, I mean, the starting point of this paper is that we have we have groups on the move in unprecedented numbers, right? We have a confluence of global, political, and economic upheaval with humanitarian and climate crises that has immigrants, that has refugees, and even local resident minoritized groups on the move in, in just numbers and mobility rates that are heretofore unprecedented. So really the bulk of research on the effects of these kinds of changes has examined how in, increased mobility impacts host country or majority group members' feelings about particular groups or their racial attitudes and policy preferences more generally. And there's sort of one prevailing framework that argues that there are these specific characteristics that are associated with the groups themselves. So, you know, for example, the presumed skill of a migrant group or the perceived foreignness of a refugee group relative to how American they seem, the competitiveness and status of a minoritized group within a community, and that all of these features are what guide majority groups' attitudes towards these groups. But what my co-authors, Vicky Fuka and uh, Marco Cavallini and I were thinking is that there, it could be that there's a complementary alternative, right? That majority groups are sensitive to a more generalized group feature that signals threat invariant to the groups in question. So it's nothing essential about the groups themselves or even stereotypes that have become associated with those groups over time. It's something more about the characteristic of any group anywhere at any time that could also help to inform predictions about whether they're likely to be targeted with discriminatory behavior and hate crimes in particular. So, you know, this is all part of my larger campaign <laughs> to get social psychologists to move away from using social categories as a unit of explanation and moving more towards a feature-centric or a context-bound sources of explanation for intergroup conflict. But we can circle back to my my broader political agenda later on and stick to the paper or talk about the paper for now. But basically the idea here was that, you know, even though we use the notion of categories to define groups, the thrust of the paper is that we should focus also on feature-centric rather than category-centric ways of thinking about conflict. So what is one such generalized threat feature that people have discussed in the context of intergroup conflict? One very notable one is group size. And this has been a, a, a topic of conversation in the social sciences now for maybe over 100 years, right? And the general finding and prediction is that the bigger a group gets, the less well they are liked by the majority group. But when you start to dig into the literature and you start to think a little bit about this, you realize that the story is a bit more complicated than that, right? So people's perceptions of demographic reality may or may not reflect that reality. People, of course, demonstrably overestimate the proportions of immigrants and refugee and also minoritized groups within their counties uh, or their local, their local communities. And then another complication is that size judgments are reference dependent. That's of individual objects or collectives. 
What do I mean by reference dependent? Well, it just means that my estimate of the size of a target of anything is determined always relative to other accessible targets, whether that's in a choice set that's in front of me or whether it's something sampled from memory. So one consequence of that is, is that the inclusion or the introduction of a new group or that group's growth could trigger threat, but it may be that they have to surpass a particular threshold to start to register as a threat, right? Because they're always going to be judged relative to the other groups in the social ecology or the community. So then the question, of course, becomes, well, what is that threshold, right? How big do they have to get? Is there some absolute size judgment? Is it relative to the majority group? You know, what is the calculus that goes into predicting whether a group is going to get targeted? So that is, is where we introduce the sort of social group reference dependence hypothesis, which is very simply that majority group members' reactions to any one group are going to depend on what other groups are also present in the social ecology, and specifically the demographic distribution of all those groups. And so one of the things I really like about this prediction is that it moves us beyond the sort of two-party intergroup conflict paradigm that tends to dominate the literature, right? That's like us versus them. And instead, starts to consider, well, what are the coalitional possibilities in a social ecology where there are always multiple groups present? There's very few places where there's only us and them, right? And so if the story is more complicated, how can we account for the fact that the story is more complicated? And so in the paper, we test a specific corollary of this general hypothesis, which is that rather than being sensitive to the absolute size of any one minority group, communities will be, or specifically majority group members, will be sensitive to minority groups' relative rank in size, being the most discriminating against whichever group represents the largest local minority, and then followed by the second largest, and so on, and so on. Um, and the idea here is that as demographics shift and groups increase in size, that specifically their rank in size, discriminatory behavior and attitudes will increase accordingly. And that what's nice about this prediction is that we can start to examine it also at local units of analysis, so specifically at the county level, as we do in this paper. So I've been going on for a little while, but maybe maybe we should talk more specifically about the the IV and the DV here, but you let me know. I think this is a terrific start. And the very last point you mentioned is also what I wanted to pick up on. So you say the main finding is as a minority group grows bigger than other minorities in a certain area that face more hate crimes. That's a very specific finding, which is that it really matters how big of a minority group, what's the rank in a certain community, in a small county, not on a national level, which is maybe what you first think of, right? On a national level, which is the biggest minority group. But that is not as powerful as the local level is what you find. So that's exactly, that's an empirical question, right? Does it matter what the sort of scale is? You could imagine that there are sort of multiple sources of demographic information, right? You have sort of explicit knowledge from, that's given to you from the media or from what you read uh, or what you hear from community members who say, do you know that, that, you know, predictions are that by 2050, the U.S. is going to be a majority minority um, or minority majority, I forget exactly what the right order is to describe the situation. Basically, the U.S. is becoming less white is the finding and the projections from the census. And so, you know, that's that's a huge topic of conversation. And a possibility is that there are these sort of explicit sources of knowledge that inform people's views of threat. But then there are other possible inputs to the way that we organize our beliefs about group threat here. And so they could be your just day-to-day experience of what things look like in your local community, in your neighborhood and in your county and so on and so forth. So what we did was we tested our social group reference dependence hypothesis in the context of the U.S. specifically 
And then we focused on white people's treatment of and attitudes towards four minoritized racial and ethnic groups in the U.S. So specifically, we looked at the targeting and victimization rates of Black, Hispanic, Asian, and Arab people. And we use data from the U.S. Census of the population between 1990 and 2010 to measure the size of those groups as, as a share of the total population, but also their rank in terms of relative size compared to each other at the county level. So, you know, in some counties, you may find that the largest minority is going to be the black community. But in, you know, one state over in a different county, you may find that it's actually going to be the Asian community represents the largest minority and so on and so forth. And so to just to examine discriminatory behavior against each of these minoritized groups, we use data on hate crimes that's compiled, compiled, as we mentioned before, by the FBI as part of the Uniform Crime Reporting Program. And this data set records the bias motivation of each crime, as we discussed. For example, there's an entry you could, be, you could read anti-black, as well as the race of the perpetrator. So our first dependent variable is the number of hate crimes committed by white offenders against a particular group in a given county and decade expressed as a fraction of that county's total population. So just to be specific here, hate crimes against that group per 100,000 inhabitants. And so we combine these two data sources, the census and the hate crimes report, to create a novel county-by-group-by-decade data set to study that relationship between hate crimes against a specific group, group size rank in a county in a given decade. And it's interesting because that's a methodological approach that many people might not think of when they think of a psychology lab. Right? You may think everything has to happen in a lab, everything has to have some sort of random assignment. But this is very much an approach that is out there in the real world. And so one might ask, how do you know what causes what? What is your methodological approach to inferring causality? It's to collaborate with people who have econometric training. <laughs> so, so Vicky and Marco are experts in this, right? This is my first foray into any kind of an analysis of this kind. And it has been just an incredible learning experience to just watch our, our conversations about causal identification unfold. And, you know, the number of robustness checks and the different ways of analyzing the data to try and really home in on what the causal features could potentially be, and at the very least, ruling out alternative explanations. So, I mean, the paper, the, the actual finding itself, which is that groups that are first ranked in size tend to be most targeted relative to the other groups by hate crimes, and that second and third are significantly less than first, but also significantly more likely to be victimized than fourth. That is a very simple finding, but the paper is long, because we go and check to see that this finding stands up to dozens of robustness checks, different ways of analyzing the data, subsetting, subsetting the data on macro regions, subsetting the data on the groups. Is it driven just by one group? No. Is it just in one area? No. You know, is it is it more or less likely to show up in more or less diverse or segregated communities? You know, so it's a long paper because we dig into all of these things. But I think one of the most interesting and important take-home messages is that what we find is that rank is predictive above and beyond group size. So it's not just the case that these hate crimes are hate crimes or are crimes of opportunity, because any observation of the effect of rank that we see on hate crimes is above and beyond the size of that group, which means that we're controlling for base rates of running into those people. So this is above and beyond that, right? The other thing that's really important to note is that we have a couple of different pieces of evidence to suggest that this is really actually based on perceptions of rank and demographic distributions rather than explicit knowledge about it. So, for example, there's one figure in the paper early on that is discontinuity plots. 
And what we're looking there is the difference basically along the x-axis from a given group, the size of that group, that is, and then the size of the group that is largest amongst the remaining minorities. And so what it is, is one of these where, you know, you have a zero point in the middle of the x-axis and everything to the right refers to the size of those groups that are largest in that county in that decade. And then everything to the left is those that are second largest. And so if rank had no effect, basically, on the predictive validity of a group's rank predicting its hate likelihood of being targeted with hate crimes per 100,000 inhabitants, you would, you would expect a smooth line, right? An, a perfectly linear relationship between the size of that group and the likelihood of being targeted. But what we see is actually there's like a, an uptick when you go to the right of the zero, right? And what that suggests is that both group size matter for the likelihood of being targeted, but also does rank those two. Because if rank didn't do anything, it'd be a, a continuous line, but what we see is a sort of a bend in the line at the zero point. But the other thing that's really important to note is that at that zero line, there's not a huge gap between where the first line to the left ends and the line to the right begins. And what that suggests is that there's not it's not actual but rather perceived rank that matters for group targeting because tiny differences in size that place a group just to the left or just to the right or and said another way just in second place or just in first place can't be noticed by majority individuals and therefore do not matter for predicting prejudice and hate crime but as those size differences become large enough for rank to be noticed we see that majority behavior adjusts accordingly and so that is one little data point to suggest that this is really about perception. The other data point that seems to matter for the perception story is that we analyze attitudes data in the UK. And the UK data that we have from Project Implicit, here we're looking at people's attitudes towards Black and Asian and Arab targets in the UK. And the UK data go all the way, they have regional units of analysis that are much smaller than those that are available in the US. So, for example, you can carve up the data by what's called LSOAs or lower level super output areas. And these are on average only 1,500 people. That's a really tiny regional unit of analysis. And then you can scale up in a more fine-grained way relative to, like, say, the comparison between county and state in the U.S., which is relatively coarse. So after lower level super output areas, you have middle layer super output areas, and that's on average 7,000 people. And then you can move up to local authority districts, and that's 10,000 to 1.5 million, which is much more comparable to our smallest unit of analysis in the U.S., which is the county level, right? And what we find in our attitudes data in the U.K., the first the first thing that's amazing is that this generalizes to a completely different country, which has a very different history and a very different distribution of these same groups that we investigate. And we still replicate our results. The first rank and second rank are worse off. They're, people's attitudes towards them are much more negative relative to the third. But the other thing that is really, really cool is that the effect gets weaker as you scale up to larger units of analysis. So what that suggests to us is that it really is these sort of local day-to-day experiences that are best capturing the predictive validity for something like negative attitudes towards these groups, as opposed to something like explicit knowledge about LAD or county level or even state level or country level demographic distributions, which aren't, aren't as predictive. I wonder about the psychology here, because we find, you even find this very symmetric, beautiful effect that as a minority rises in rank, they face more hate crimes. As they're lower in rank, they face fewer hate crimes. That, you know, 
the effects are somewhat symmetric. I wonder about the psychology behind this on part of the people who do commit the hate crimes. Well, that's actually one of my favorite findings in the paper, in part because, you know, the question, an obvious question is, well, how does this rank ordering translate into discrimination, right? There, you could imagine there is a world in which, you know, a majority group member has one minority group in their social ecology and they're very hateful towards them. And then a new group comes in and they remain hateful towards the first group and also grow in their animus against this new group as well, right? But we speculate that people sort of begin from a premise that they have finite resources <laughs> with which to either defend their group or, you know, aggress against other groups. And that should generate a rank ordering of threat from greatest to least urgency. So while in principle, people could maintain staunchly negative attitudes and behavior towards everybody as an outgroup, but they would end up in practice entirely surrounded by competitors and foes. So one strategy is to infer new groupings to become relatively more inclusive towards less threatening outgroups. And of course, strategically, this makes sense, right? And, and the rank symmetry finding that you know suggests that this, it does seem like people perceive a closed system of resources, which generates a rank ordering of competition. So people are going to basically conserve their hate <laughs> for the biggest threats, but then simultaneously become slightly more inclusive towards former threats that have now become less threatening, because this is a reasonable coalitional strategy. Right. And this is another this is this is all part of my you know agenda to get people to think more in terms of coalitions and multi groups rather than just us versus them in these binary group models. So and historically, there's really interesting precedent for this. So how I got into working with Marco and Vicky is that they already have archival data looking at how it is that the Irish and Italian immigrants became racialized as white in the turn of the 20th century in the U.S. And the way that it happened was basically they can document uh, county by county that there are increases in naturalization of Irish and Italian immigrants, as well as intermarriage between sort of local white populations and Irish and Italian immigrants in those counties specifically where they saw larger inflows of southern born blacks during the Great Migration. So basically what happens is you have a new outgroup come in and greater tolerance of the former outgroup that was discriminated against. And that was predictive of how it is that they became a quote new in-group. They inferred new groupings over the coalitions because of newcomers, not because things had particularly changed about the target groups here. So that is how our common interests on the, my interest on coalitional psychology and their work, their past work on assimilation kind of was the marriage that, that spawned this collaboration. Building on what you just said, the psychology of the people who commit hate crimes and their probably lack of insight into what is driving them, right? And this is going against the idea of essentialism, as you say. You don't, as someone who wants to commit a hate crime, you wouldn't look at people based on their skin color and their language, maybe in all these features. You might think this is what is bugging you, but what is bugging you underneath all this and then gets attached to these features is really this feeling, maybe this fear of these people will be replacing us, right? We might no longer be the majority, which seems like a much deeper psychological analysis. Yeah, exactly. And I think it makes interesting predictions for how the features that are most predictive of discrimination could vary over different geographies or change over time, right? So, you know, it is undeniable that at the national level, Black and Hispanic victims are targeted the most with hate crimes relative to any other minoritized group. But that clearly varies by geography, and it may also vary over time. So that for those places where, say, Asian and Hispanic populations begin to overtake other minority populations or already have, you may find that, for example, language or accent 
maybe the particularly predictive feature relative to say skin tone for determining who it is is most likely to get targeted with prejudice and hate in part because the coalitional cue is what guides the threat but then there are arbitrary markers that get associated with that coalitional cue that then become they're not they are, they themselves are not the driving factors but they get become associated and and act as markers for who ought to be targeted with with prejudice and hate crimes i mean and, and this could get mapped onto anybody right so i have just as like a, a little bit of anecdote data. I have a family member, their cousins were just moved from California to Idaho. And it turns out that, you know, a lot of folks are moving out of California because it's very expensive to live in California. The taxes are really high. And so they, they decided to move to Idaho. And it turns out that they are part of a, a larger phenomenon of Californians moving to Idaho. And they noticed, you know, for example, while they still had their California plates under car, that people were driving aggressively towards them or that people would be rude to them on the road. And after a few months of living where, where they had moved, they also noticed that there were billboards up in the neighborhood that said, keep California out of Idaho. And I was really curious about this. You know, I, I, I was like, what is California shorthand for in this case? Is this, you know, racial and ethnic minorities? What is, and the answer was money. Mm-hmm. You have an influx of people who are driving up housing costs, right? And the more of them there is, the more the people who live there are getting priced out of the market. And it's exact. it's, Exactly this thing. California becomes a marker for economic problem of driving up local housing costs for the people who already live there, right? And people are being priced out of their homes. They can't buy them anymore. It's basically just to say that, you know, as these numbers increase, they can create all sorts of interesting challenges for the local, the resident community that was already there. But then they get sort of associated with or flagged with labels that then act as shorthand for targeting the discrimination or prejudice towards those groups. I'm thinking of the Mahatma Gandhi quote that the true measure of society is how it treats its most vulnerable members and how that might somewhat align with your research, but also highlights it's not always obvious who the most vulnerable members are. It's not always the people at the very bottom of society. It can be the people who are rising and seen as maybe replacing the majority who are facing more hate crimes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, Someone whose work I think is so important, uh, the sociologist Jennifer Lee has all this amazing data on on inflows of Asians into the U.S. And so Asian Americans continue to be the U.S.'s fastest growing racial category in the U.S., with immigration being a major driver of this growth. And, you know, one there's a couple there's one prediction out there, which is that given Asian status and however you define Asians, I mean, this is a. This is another complication, right? I mean, this is like a very heterogeneous category that, you know, Americans all lump together. Nobody else in the world uses the, the word Asian as a category. That's crazy. <laughs> but anyway, um, in the U.S., uh, there is a social, the sort of notion of a model minority and that there's a protective sort of a, a protection that comes with that. But, you know, I think that the last couple of years have shown us that that status is quite tenuous. And, you know, the prediction, the slightly potentially counterintuitive prediction from our model is that actually, as these communities grow, and particularly those places where they outnumber other minoritized communities, they're actually at greater risk. So that things are not going to just get better and Asians will be, quote, assimilated into whiteness. It, it actually may become more and more conflictual, that relationship. And so we'll see. We'll see what happens. This is one of those cases where I would be very happy to be wrong. <laughs> Um, but, but we'll see what, what's happening. So what do we do <laughs> on a more specific and more general level? Specifically, do we know how to fight hate crimes 
And more generally, how do you think about the role of social psychologists in fighting prejudice, hate crimes, and other social problems? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a great, it's a million dollar question, million dollar question, right? And if I had the answer for eradicating hate crimes, you know, I'd be buying my ticket to Sweden right now to collect my Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> but um, I think, I mean, I think being armed with knowledge in order to be able to make predictions about who is the most likely to get targeted, what we should be looking for, where we should be looking for specifically is certainly a good start. And I think more generally, you know, maybe maybe this is not a bad time for me to get into my soapbox about sort of coalitional approaches within social psychology, if that's okay with you. Yes. Okay. So, you know, basically, I, I think it's fairly uncontroversial to say that social groups are woven tightly into the fabric of our lives. They shape how we perceive, punish, cooperate, who we learn from, and so on and so forth. But the problem, and, and I, I suspect that this has been coming out over the course of our conversation, I think that the dominant model of how we study and seek to understand our group dynamics is very incomplete. Um, and in large part, it's because of our reliance on social categories, right? So in part because of the prominence of social identity theory and, you know, really remarkable demonstrations like the minimal groups paradigm where you can get people to exhibit social bias, even with random assignment teams, our literature really focuses a lot on the role of explicit category membership in predicting intergroup attitudes and behavior. So, for example, black versus white people or rattlers versus eagles, if we go back to the classic Sharif studies and the robber's cave. But my gripe is that this, this approach is really limited because social categories are not fixed homogeneous entities. So, for one, the associations with specific categories change over time, like we just talked about when Italian and Irish uh, immigrants became white in America in the 20th century by assimilating into native white communities. Of course, allegiances between categories change, right? So, you and I are chatting now. You can compare Americans' relationships to Germans now versus 80 years ago, right? And that's naturally going to change the nature of attitudes and behavior that unfolds in this intergroup context. And of course, not all categories carry with them the psychological potency and purpose of groups. You're blonde, I'm brunette. But those are not categories that we generally think of as predictive of something like, you know, meaningful intergroup conflict, even though they're identifiable visual cues to our category membership. The other thing that I find unsatisfying is that studies that are based on social categories make it really hard to infer from them anything about generalized group processes, right? So, for example, some but not all social categories are intrinsically confounded with differences in the visual appearance of targets. Many groups carry with them particular stereotypes and associated prejudices. Perceived familiarity with the groups in question is going to vary and so on and so forth. So I don't know what aspects of one intergroup interaction are going to port over into another one, right? So interpolitical party versus an interracial interaction. And then the other thing is that category, the category-based approach is limited because it's context insensitive, right? It kind of breaks down as agents' goals shift or as agents' other intersecting identities become salient. So you can consider, for example, the adage, not all skin folk is kin folk or widespread confusion as to how many Hispanic, how so many Hispanic and Latinx voters supported Trump in the 2020 election. And then there's also finally like the research hazard for researchers sort of reifying or, or, or contributing to the essentialization of these categories, because research that treats these demographic categories as purposive groups, groups will not only run into these explanatory limitations, we may ironically end up reinforcing stereotypes and the beliefs that these categories are social monoliths. So I guess my goal is not to, you know, eradicate the study of social categories, because of course, they're meaningful, of course, they're important units, psychological units of organization for people themselves, but also for perceivers. But as researchers, 
that if we use categories as a unit of explanation, we're going to run into these problems over and over and over again. And so we shouldn't get rid of studying categories, but we need to also study these more general cues or coalitional psychologies that allow us to make predictions out of sample and also allow us to try to, you know, build structures that are going to help us maybe diagnose where where, where the next hotspots will be, who the next hot targets will be, how can we best inform, you know, protections and policies to prevent those people from having to be continually marginalized and, and suffering more. Because I think a lot of our sort of lay intuitions about how all this will play out are, are wrong. And I think that's best demonstrated by research by Maureen Craig and Jen Richardson and their co- Julian Recker, their colleague, also Ryan Enos. There was this notion of, oh, as soon as we become minority majority in the U.S., we're just automatically going to become a more progressive country, right? And Jen, Maureen, and, and all these other folks were in a very small minority of people who were waving their hands saying, no, 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 on the contrary shit is about to hit the fan. <laughs> and so these intuitions that as these numbers will change, everybody will go, you know, silent and stack at night are, are, are dead wrong. And so far, the data seems to suggest that they're absolutely correct. How do you know a research idea is worth pursuing? There's so many battles to fight. How do you pick your battles? I guess the things that I find personally important and meaningful are the things that I find most motivating. On top of that, also, who I'm working with, you know, so opportunities to work with my students or amazing collaborators like Vicky and Marco, that, that really, that's like the fun part of research, even when you're studying these very dark topics. The other thing is that when you study things that are terrible, like hate crimes, there's a world in which it's a win-win, right? So if you're right, you win because you're right in your research question, even though it's terrible for the world. But if you're wrong, that's probably means something good for the world to win-win. <laughs> There's something my advisor, my grad advisor, Susan Fisk always said, which is that if something starts to make you uncomfortable, that's where you know where to stop. You need to stop and you need to start digging and you need to start thinking deeply about what it is that's bothering you about it or making you personally uncomfortable. Or I think that that's, that's also been a guiding principle for sort of where I, where I invest my, my time and my resources and my attention. I have one final question for you. Do you have any advice for young social psychologists out there who might be listening to this, want to produce research that makes them uncomfortable? And also feel free to add anything else you want. Oh, dear. Well, I think I have a lot <laughs> that I would say, but I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm having trouble deciding how to prioritize what I want to share. So I guess, I mean, there's sort of, you know, like really big picture advice and there's sort of like practical tidbits of advice and things like this. I guess one of the things that I would say that you should work on things you want to work on because the preferences of other people are, they're just aesthetic preferences. They don't necessarily reflect the merit of your ideas or you as a person or, or the importance of the issue out of the world. Maybe that you're asking questions that someone likes, but they don't like how you're asking it. This is often what we get in reviews on papers, right? Well, if I were to run this study, this is how I would do it. <laughs> I don't like how you did it. Um, so, you know, just that, there are a lot of really incredible people to learn from and there's so much there's so much value in collaboration and training but there's also a, a point at which you know if you are no longer working on things that you're interested in working on because you're chasing the approval of other people for hiring or promotion or because you're chasing grants then it's just not worth it you know we could we could get paid a lot more <laughs> to go work on things you don't want to work on um, so you know basically that we should be doing the things that matter to us because this job is an incredible privilege and it's 
it still blows my mind to this day that I get paid to do what I do. But I know that if I stop doing the things that I find interesting or to try to meet some arbitrary criteria, that it will, I will know that that is the day that it is no longer working for me. So I guess that's like the high level advice that I would give to folks. And then, oh goodness. Yeah. You know, try to be as much your authentic self in your research, but also in how you show up to work every day. Try to practice open science to the best of your abilities. Post your data, <laughs> share your code, share your materials, pre-register as often as you can. Don't worry about like joining a club or upsetting people who do it more or less than you do. Just do the best science that you can. And um, yeah, just try to be a good community member. I'm not sure. This isn't a very good concrete advice at all, but it's, I just feel like we're having a lot of arguments about things that shouldn't be arguments. It feels very self-evident to me, especially like on Twitter, you know, just, just do good work that matters to you. And then, you know, what happens happens and, and we'll all be okay. It's, it is, it is, it's a job. What a wonderful conversation. I certainly learned a lot. <laughs> I, <hope so> <laughs> I have actually learned a lot from the feedback and from the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We would love to hear what you think of this episode or if you have any other suggestions for future guests or topics for the podcast. You can reach us at stanfordpsychpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter at stanfordpsypod. Finally, if you enjoy this podcast, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere so more people can find us. Thank you so much.